0: Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. Um, grateful for all of you listeners. As I've mentioned before, the best things you can do to support this podcast, you can't donate it, but you can rate it. And you can check out my book, Listen, Learn, and Love, Embracing LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. And it helps me and it helps more people connect with the book when you leave a review at Amazon and Desert Book. Uh, My guest on today, who's in my home on a Sunday afternoon, we're both sitting here just coming out of church in ties. I wish you could see us. We both have shirts and ties on. We look very official, Um, is my friend Calvin Smith. Welcome to the podcast, Calvin. Thank you for having me. Um, Calvin's going to tell his story as a gay Latter-day Saint. And just by way of introduction, the end story or the hope for Calvin, and I've learned this as we visited, he is just graduated from BYU. And his plan is to be in an homogamous, same-sex relationship. And so both Calvin and I realize that path is outside the doctrine of our church, but it's the reality that some LGBTQ Latter-day Saints feel is their path. And I've learned to just honor that and let people self-determine their path and keep them in my love and support and prayers and leave any judging to our Savior. So this is a little bit about Elder Cook's talk as unity and diversity. Um, but my hope in having Calvin share his story is it'll be helpful for all of us to help us come together as the same human family and better support people like Calvin that both want to be um, spend his life with someone in a same-sex marriage and participate in the church as best he can. He knows that he may um, lose his church membership over this decision, but he would still like to attend our church. And I hope that at the local level, that we create a feeling like Christ's model that everybody's welcome, needed, and a feeling of belonging. and We'll talk more about that. So Calvin, as I mentioned, just graduated from BYU. He um, graduated a degree in teaching social science, and he is a high school um, teacher teaching U.S. history, one of my favorite subjects in Utah County. He served a mission in some place that I think is pretty cool. Tell our listeners where you served, Calvin.
1: I served in Mozambique and Swaziland.
0: And did you serve in the day when the call came in the mail? Yes, I did. And did any did you do the big like everybody guess your place?
1: Yes. Did yeah, someone guessed Africa, but I don't think they guessed actually Mozambique.
0: But. And just geographically because I like to think of Africa, just take us geographically where that is.
1: So it's in the southeastern part of Africa. So where Madagascar is, it's yeah. right across from Madagascar on that continent.
0: That's great. And tell us your age and how long you've, I guess, if you tell us how long you've been home your mission, it will infer (laughs) your age to some extent.
1: So um, I got home in 2017. I'm 24.
0: 24. Um, So I'll just kind of, you know, listeners, we said a prayer and our hope is that just this podcast and the things that Calvin has learned, the principles that he shares will just be helpful for you. As some of you, as we're just learning about this space and better support people, so I'll just kind of turn over to you, Calvin, to start sharing your story.
1: So I was born in West Jordan, and then when I was three, our family moved to South Jordan, and that's where my parents are still there. Um, So I I grew up in South Jordan. I went to Bingham High School. Um, I've got two older brothers and a younger sister. Um, Our we've always been active in the church. Our family always attended church. and yeah, just growing up to, to serve a mission was kind of the, the goal. Our, um, our parents made me and all of my siblings take piano lessons so that we could play the piano on our missions. Um, and then, yeah, my one of my uh, earliest memories is um, we would always, uh, you know, when we were younger, we'd eat breakfast together, and my mom would read the Book of Mormon with us, and we'd have that, you know, huge family-sized Book of Mormon with all the pictures in it and everything. And we'd pass it around and we each take turns reading a verse. And um, yeah, my mom's testimony of the Book of Mormon is just, it's insane. She still texts our family every morning with a Book of Mormon verse, um, just because, you know, she she reads through it very quickly. And, you know, she just, uh, you know, is constantly, once she finishes, she'll Go on and start back up in first Nephi, and then just keep going. I think she's read it you know hundreds of times by now, but um yeah, so uh the the gospel was always something that was very prevalent in our family um growing up i i was um I was a very sensitive child, very sensitive and uh, to the feelings of others um and i you know I don't think I ever really considered myself being gay up until I was, you know, about a teenager. But, um, you know, I, I definitely had a a special connection with my mom. You know, we definitely, uh, can pick up on each other's feelings. Um, and yeah, when I was younger, I, um, started to, to show like signs of depression. Um, and it was around age nine. I remember, um, I made a, I made a comment that really, uh, kind of freaked out my mom. And, uh, you know, I started seeing counselors and, you know, I've been in and out of counseling and, and therapists and on and off medication ever since. And um, it's something that, you know, runs in my family, something that my mom has struggled with. And maybe that's why we have such a good connection as she can uh, really relate to that. Um, but yeah, that's uh, something that I have, um, you know, that I've been living with. Um, but I'm definitely I don't I definitely don't let depression um, define who I am it's just something that that I live with and from time to time it uh, it just makes things a little bit more difficult but honestly it just makes me a bit more empathetic of a person just to understand uh, what people go through sometimes um, so I came right well, I never really came out to my parents I never had that luxury <laughs> um, so when I was 13 I um, Uh, I remember this day very vividly. But leading up to this, um, no one ever really explained to me what gay meant. Um, The only times that I was ever exposed to it was like in movies and TV shows and everything. And being gay was always like the butt of the joke. Um, And so I never really understood what it meant. No one ever really explained that to me. Um, But I I remember one night we were watching TV as a family and some you know, they made a reference to being gay or whatever. And I was just curious about it. Um, and so the next day I decided to go and, you know, try and find that same clip to see if I could, you know, just to kind of process it a little bit better. Um, and so, of course, that leads me down to some uh, suggestive material. Um, I remember looking it up on YouTube. And so this kind of started into my first, you know, exposures to pornography and everything. And, um I, you know, so I was looking at it, I think, every day for like two weeks, just trying to absorb what this was. And obviously, like, I, I was attracted to it, you know, and it fascinated me. And, but I knew deep down that it wasn't something that I was supposed to be looking at, you know. Like I didn't obviously, I wasn't watching it, you know, on the couch in the family room, you know, uh, when other people were around. Um, so uh, I remember one day walking home from school. Um, and then I was like, okay, yeah, I'm going to, you know, look at this again when I get home from school. And I was in my room in the basement. Um, and I didn't have that much time cause I was going to swim practice in like 30 minutes or something. So I didn't have that much time, but I remember my mom, um, you know, walks in through the door and, you know, obviously I put, I think it was an iPod or something, whatever it was, I put it away quickly. And so obviously she comes up to me and she's like, no, what are you looking at? Um, And I, you know, so she takes it and and looks at it and, you know, my poor mother, uh, she honestly kind of freaked out and, um, you know, which I'm sure she was, uh, I I don't even know what was going through her head, but I'm sure she was very shocked and confused. And I I remember the first thing I told her was, um, don't tell dad was the first thing I said, because... Um, you know, growing up and still to this day, I just, you know, I live to to make my dad proud of me. And something like that was definitely not uh, what I wanted him to know about me. And so I just, we went up to her room and, you know, I'm distraught and I'm sobbing and I'm like, don't tell dad. And she's like, well, of course I have to tell dad, you know. And, and I remember I was like, my carpool was coming, you know while this is all happening, my carpool is coming to pick me up for swim practice. And I just, I'm like, no, mom, I can't go. Like, And she's like, nope, you're going to have to go to swim practice and we'll talk about this later. So I go to practice and then my dad picks me up and we drop off the carpool. And then um, it's the most awkward car ride of my life, just sitting there with my dad. Because I'm like, well, obviously he knows, but we're not talking about it yet. Because So we get home and then we start our first of many conversations of me in my parents' bedroom with the door closed, and we're talking about, you know, this situation. And um, it, uh, my parents um, definitely wanted to help, and I think they were trying their best at the time to, to do what they felt was best for me. Um, and obviously, you know, they they're like, "Well, pornography is such a bad thing," and I'm like, "Well, I didn't even know this was pornography." Um, and so, I, you know, for from 13 on through the rest of middle school and high school, um, it was uh, something that I really struggled with. And eventually, I did get into like actual explicit material and everything. And um, you know, I would always feel super guilty, and I would go. Talk to my parents about it. And then, you know, it just felt like something that I was burdening them with, you know, of like, okay, well, now I have to tell them again. And um, it, me being gay was never really something that was ever spoken of. It was always, well, this is a pornography issue and we need to resolve the pornography issue. And um, I never really separated the two. It was always pornography is a cause of me being gay and being gay is a cause of me looking at pornography. And, you know, those two were always intertwined. And so I always saw being gay as a problem, you know, because pornography is a problem. Being gay, therefore, is a problem. And so I felt super guilty about these feelings that I was having. And I would go talk to a bishop about it and, you know, they'd try and help. I think one time for for a few months, I saw a counselor of like how to get me over this addiction that I was having and um, yeah, it never really occurred to me that these two things were separated. Um, so I, I struggled with this during, during middle school and high school. Um, middle school was a rough time as it is for most LGBTQ adolescents. Um, I, you know, struggled with bullying, struggled with self-esteem issues and with depression. I think I was on medication consistently at the time, um. I remember growing up, all of my friends were girls. Um, That was just who I connected with. Um, And I think in elementary school, people definitely noticed, but then in middle school, people started to talk about it and realize all of Calvin's friends are girls. And I remember one day during lunch, this was in eighth grade, I think, and um, I'm sitting with all of my friends who were all girls at lunch at the lunch table. And then um, one of them just out of the blue just says, who thinks Calvin's gay? And they all raised their hands and I was like, no, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know? um, but that was a very uh, jarring experience because it made me really consider what if I am and what does that even look like, you know, and um, well, I can tell them that, no, that I'm not gay, but then I go and I look at gay porn and how, how do I reconcile those two things, you know? I definitely don't want to be gay because being gay is a problem. You know, being gay is something that I have to go talk to my bishop about. When in reality, I was talking to my bishop about the pornography, not about being gay, you know. Um, So uh, high school was a lot better. Um, Swimming definitely helped me to gain some self-esteem and to put my mind, put a lot of more energy into something that was positive. Um, So, uh, yeah, I, I... had uh, High school was the first time that I really developed friends that were guys and that I had, like, healthy friendships with. Um, and, you know, I, I was going on dates with girls. I was going to dances. I was doing everything that I felt like I should do. Um, and, and it was fun. And before my mission, I was able to, you know, quote-unquote, solve the pornography issue. But then that also left, you know, the gay part. And that was the first time that I really was able to separate the two and say, well, yeah, I can overcome pornography, but me being gay and having these attractions is still there. And solving the pornography issue doesn't solve the gay problem. Um, I remember it was like a week before I left on my mission. I was in the car with my mom and we were talking about it. And I remember I had had a dream where um, I had kissed a guy and it was really throwing me for a loop because I'm like, but i i don't i don't want to do that i don't want to be like that but i had this dream about it and now that i'm thinking about it maybe i do and i don't know how to go about that because i'm leaving on a mission in a week and i remember telling my mom and um i'm sure it scared her to death and um it was the first time she said you know what calvin if you if this is what you wanted to do like we'll still love you and i remember telling her that that conversation i was like if i if I am gay, I'm just going to run away. I'm going to leave my family. I'm going to leave everything that I've ever known and go run away because then I won't have to deal with consequences of being being gay, you know? I can just go live my life independently of everything else that I've already lived. Um, So, yeah, I, I left on my mission and my mom was obviously worried about me <laughs> um, and... Yeah, so like I said, I served in Mozambique, and Swaziland, and um, it definitely, uh, I mean, it was an awesome experience. It was everything that it needed to be. Um, I was able to distance myself from the problem. I didn't really think about it all that much. Um, again, I, I had great companions. Um, the way that our mission was set up, we I never lived with just me and my companion. Um, for safety reasons, we always lived with, you know, at least another companionship, if not two other companionships. And so, um, it was just, it was great to, to have that camaraderie. I think it was the first time that I really felt, um, accepted by other guys where they weren't thinking about, oh, I think Calvin's gay. You know, it was, no, Elder Smith is a, is a good missionary, you know, and I, I really, you know, I tried to live up to the expectations that other people had for me as a missionary. Um, but yeah, I, I grew closer to God. I developed a testimony of Christ. Um, I, I loved the people so much. Um, I actually got the opportunity to go visit back with my dad a couple of years ago and that's cool. it was awesome. Um, so I, during my mission, I first realized that I'm an instrument in the Lord's hands and that my life is not really my own. I think what I ther- what helped me to first realize that was like, um, I was thinking about like lunch um, and the hour that we get for lunch as a missionary. And I was like, if we didn't need to eat, I don't think we would have that hour. You know, if we didn't need to sleep, then we would just be working all day, every day. You know, is that that hour for lunch is so that we can get energy to go out and work. It's not for our own benefit. You know, the time that we sleep, the time that we exercise is so that we can recuperate to go out and work and serve, you know, and teach the gospel. Because that's what our whole purpose was is to bring others closer to Christ. And so everything that we did as missionaries was so that it could help us better be able to do that. And I really was able to expand that to my own life and see, you know, I am just an instrument in the Lord's hands. My life is not my own. My life exists to help other people and to uh, you know, every talent, every gift that I've been given has been so that I can go and serve others, you know, like, for example, on my mission, you know, uh, in Mozambique, they speak Portuguese and Portuguese really came easily to me. And it was something that was, you know, was one of my biggest strengths as a missionary. And I realized that's a gift from God. It's not for my own personal gains so that I can go and speak Portuguese and get, um fame or notoriety or anything. It's so that I can better communicate with people. Um, Same thing with the piano. You know, I, the reason that I loved the piano so much, the reason that I developed that talent was so that I could go and play the piano in sacrament meeting since there, I mean, piano is not an instrument that most Mozambicans are familiar with. And so there was hardly anyone that knew how to play the piano. Um, So that was something that I did every Sunday and um, people loved it. And I was like, yeah my the gift of me being able to play the piano is not for me it's for other people um and you know same thing with teaching everything that's been given in my life like my family and the gospel and BYU and you know my friends and everything that i have in my life is not for me it's for it's just for the fact that i can go and serve other people you know as i've seen my life been you know i've been trained to go and Right now, my calling is to be a teacher. And, you know, every experience that I've ever had in school is so that I can now go and help other students, help my students, and help them to learn and grow as individuals. So, yeah, I, I just, my mission was a special time where I finally started to, it finally clicked in my head. It's like, no, my life isn't for me. Um, so, towards the end of my mission, I, I had a... Um, I really had a mental health episode, I guess. I had my first panic attack towards the end of my mission, um, and uh, I was just feeling very inadequate um, and feeling like you know my the state of my mental being was not was prohibiting me from finishing my mission, which therefore scared me even more because it's like, well, if I can't go home early, you know. It, this was like right before my last transfer and so i was like well no i have to finish if i come home early then what am i going to what am i going to say to my parents what am i going to say to the people in my ward what am i going to do you know and luckily i had a great mission president who um who recognized that i was hurting and really helped me to get in a better spot mentally um i actually uh um, I don't know if I can say this, but I actually lived with my mission president, my last transfer. So I was um, serving as assistant and we were traveling a lot and everything. And right before that last transfer, he was like, uh, he could tell I was really struggling. And I think part of the reason too is we didn't have water in our apartment. The water was shut off for some reason. And so that wasn't really helping. And so he's like, well, just, just come live with me, you know, live with me in in our house or whatever. And then you don't have to deal with it. Um and I him think and his, that's great. Yeah, him and his wife were just, um, you know, his his wife is one of the most Christ-like people I've ever met, and she really cared for me as a mother when I needed a mother, you know. And um, she would like give me a little a packet of herbal tea or something every night so that I could sleep better, you know. And but yeah, that was the first time that I really struggled with anxiety. I would always struggled with depression, but. Anxiety was something that really started to set in in early adulthood. Um, But yeah, I I finished my mission and I came home and I was ready to get married as soon as possible. And that was my goal. And I think I I had a friend from high school that I was thinking of and I was like, okay, this is is it. This is going to happen. I don't know how exactly, but this is what I'm going to do. And I went to BYU-Idaho right like three weeks after I got home, went up to Rexburg um, and you know, I started dating women, and um, I started to quickly realize that this same-sex attraction wasn't going away. You know, like I would, I would be in situations where, like, you know, I'd be in the locker room, and it would just really stress me out, and I would start to freak out, and therefore become more and more anxious, and then just lose control. You know, and I, I was thinking about the, you know, this what seemed like such a daunting task of, you know, getting married in the temple and, you know, establishing an eternal covenant with someone. And I was like, how can I do that if I'm not attracted to them? How can I have, how can I involve other people? How can I involve a wife and her family and kids and everything? And, and what if 10 years down the road, I just can't take it anymore. And that was like such a crippling fear that I had that I was like, I, I can't do this. And so, um, I really struggled, um, personally with these things. And I had always, you know, ever since I was 13, I was, I had always, um, talked to my parents about this. And this is, you know, the first time where I was really facing it head on. I wasn't close to my family. Um, I wasn't close to my parents. I felt like I couldn't talk to my roommates about it. Um, I couldn't, you know, talk to my friends about it. And so I just felt very alone and very isolated. Um, And so I, you know, met with bishops up there. I uh, Church started to become a stressful experience. Um, And, you know, I was really just thinking long and hard about this of, you know, what am I going to do? During this process, I also came out to my siblings and they were they were as supportive as they could be um, and understanding and everything. But also I was living in Rexburg, you know, by myself. I didn't have my family around me. And so um, it was kind of hard to find a support group. But luckily, um, you know, the bishops that I had were pretty helpful. My roommates were essential. I didn't know any of them going when I moved to Rexburg, but just by, you know by god's hand we ended up being roommates for those semesters and they really just they loved me for who i was and that was exactly what i needed even if they didn't know that i was gay at the time even though i i only came out to one of them i think while i was still up there um they just they just loved me and they you know accepted me into their family basically um and i am just forever grateful that you know, I've always had people in my life who have needed to be there at that time. Um, but I decided, one, for my mental health, and two, for the career path that I was going to go down, I decided to transfer to to BYU Provo um, just to be a little bit closer to home. Um, but, yeah, so I transferred down to Provo. Um, that was an interesting experience. I love BYU-Idaho because it's very low-key. Not everyone takes themselves too seriously, um, and I feel like the mission of the university is a lot more—it's um, a lot more chill. I would get, I would say, as far as you know, we're just going to help you get your degree, and that's really our purpose: is to help anyone and everyone who wants to earn a college degree come to BYU Idaho. BYU is a—it's a whole different beast. Um, when I when I went down to Provo, it was. Um, pretty isolating i only had one so my best friend who we were mission companions um i moved in with him and i you know quickly started to realize how impersonal of an environment it is and it is very high stakes and you know the university in and of itself just i feel like um struggles to see individuals and to um to treat their students the way that they need to be treated. And I love BYU as an academic institution. Um, They got me a job. They got me a degree. And I'm super grateful for that. But as far as like, you know, the, the student experience, I think um, just was not great for me. I mean, I, it was hard to, to go to every class and, you know, just sit there and hear people talk about, oh, I got engaged or I'm dating this person now, or we just got married or you know, sometimes it felt like they were rubbing it in my face. <laughs> no, I know they weren't. But uh, when you're at BYU, the idea is that is the end all be all. That is your goal. If you get married, you've made it. When in reality, that's couldn't be further from the truth. But when you're in that environment, that is what you have your sights set on. And so to constantly be reminded of what I could not have, you know, I'd walk from one building to the other. And in that five minutes of walking from this building to the library, you know, I'd see 10 to 15 reminders of, oh, there's another couple in love who's going to get sealed and going to have an eternal family. And that's just something that I can't have. And it was really hard because, you know, there wasn't an official support group that I could go to, you know, there wasn't other people that I could talk about that I could talk with that were going through the same thing. Um, So I, had some uh this was the first time this was January of twenty nineteen where I had my first um suicidal episode should say um I started to realize I think I had I had heard or read a you know a quote from Jeffrey R. Holland that said like yeah people who have same-sex attraction they will be those issues will be resolved after this life and that really led me down a <laughs> a pretty bad spiral because i saw i was thinking well why do i even do this why even bother with this life if i am just going to be fixed in the next life what am i doing here and i i remember i just felt like for so long i had been going between these two options i can either leave the church and marry a man and pursue that lifestyle or i can stay in the church and just Be celibate. If I can't marry a woman, I'm just going to be celibate for the rest of my life. And um, I was wrestling between these two options, and it just felt like, why do I even have to make this decision? You know, there's got to be another option. And I suicide for me was the back door. It was okay. Well, I won't have to deal with the consequences. I won't have to make a choice. And I mean, I remember feeling, you know, those 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 weeks in January, I remember feeling like best case scenario is if I just get hit by a car and therefore I won't have to deal with the consequences, consequence of me taking my own life. That was the best case scenario. And I started to realize um, that, you know, they they talk about the war in heaven. They talk about pre-mortal life and everything. And they talk about that one third that you know, decided to go with, with Satan and, and his plan and everything. And I've really, for the first time, understood why is because in Satan's plan, there was no there's no agency. You don't have to make a decision. That agency, that that burden of having to make a choice is removed. And you don't have to deal with the consequences of that. And for me, that was like great. I understand now why they wanted to do that, why that seemed so tempting to them, because even though you don't have ownership of your life, at least you don't have to deal with the negative consequences of a decision that you make. And I remember just laying in my bed, sobbing, pleading with God to just remove me from the situation. Take me out of the picture. Let me be let me be. I don't even. I don't even want a celestial body. Just let me be an angel that helps other people, so that I don't have to deal with my own mortality. You know, that I don't have to deal with my own eternity and my own realities. And I. I yeah. I, I got to a breaking point, and um. So this is um, sorry. I don't want to take a lot of time on this, but I just I. Um, I remember the day very vividly. I remember I was um, walking to my Portuguese class and I just, I couldn't do it anymore. And I, I reached out and I, I called my, called my dad. He was in a meeting at work. And then I called my mom and, you know, and she was at work and then she's, she was like, I told her what was going on. And she's like, okay, I'm driving down to Provo right now to come and get you. I need you to go home. And so I, I walked home, and I was like, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to be safe. I don't know that there's anybody that's going to be home. And um, uh, luckily, my, my best friend, um, he ended up having one of his classes get canceled or something. And he, you know, by, by the grace of God, was home <laughs> at that time. And I walked in, and he could tell I was very upset and was not okay um and this is the best friend we were we were companions for 5 weeks um we say that we we got transferred early for some reason or whatever <laughs> the way that mozambique logistics works you have to get transferred a little bit early sometimes but um yeah we were uh, companions for 5 weeks and while we were just sitting there waiting for my mom he went and got one of his journals um that he wrote when we were companions and he just read stories from, sorry, he read stories from when we were companions and, um, you know, he just, it got my mind off of things. It heightened the mood a little bit, but it was one of the most tender experiences to see that he was placed in my life at that time to be there, to be the person that I needed, um, and, you know, I I had a—there were a couple other times where I was, um, I was really close. There was another time in March um, uh, that same year that I was in church and just despondent. And I remember—so this same friend was giving the elders quorum lesson on the law of chastity. And I remember just sitting there like, I can't take this. I can't do this. I can't sit here and listen to another— elders quorum lesson on eternal marriage when that's something that I can't have. And so I walked home from campus and, um, there was, um, I had a bunch of anxiety medication that, you know, had left over from a prescription. And I just, that was the way that I was going to do it. And I was, I don't think that, you know, I didn't even do my research. I don't think that those you know, taking all those pills at once would have actually done anything, but I had them in my hand and I was just sitting in the bathroom being like, I, I can't do this. And my friend, um, he like, he could tell I was upset and left and he, um, ended the lesson early and sprinted home from <laughs> campus and came and found me. And I, again, I'm so grateful that he was there Um, and I, I, I owe my life to him and just to have someone who, who understood and, you know, who could just sit there and just someone to talk to, you know, I always say, you know, whenever I've been through a breakup or whatever, whenever I've had a hard time, he's always there miraculously. Um, and, uh, I'm just, I'm so glad that, you know, that that, that he was there, but so I was able to get the help that I needed. Um, you know, going through a suicidal episode, I remember I, you know, went to my therapist, you know, as, as an emergency session basically. And she was like, okay, you have two options. You can go home with your parents and like, be on house arrest basically where you're not alone you know you have to be with someone 24 7 like you have to keep the bathroom door open basically or you can be you know admitted to a hospital and I decided to go and you know I stayed with my parents for a week and just it was hard it felt like that feeling when you're sick and you know you want to you have to stay home from school that was kind of the feeling but instead of being 13 and celebrating, you're like, oh, yeah, I get to watch movies all day. It's like, no, I'm an adult now, and I have a job, and I have classes that I have to be at, but I can't because I am not in a good state of mind. And so I really had to take a step back. I really had to figure out what my life was going to look like. So I had to figure out my relationship with the church and what that was going to look like for the rest of my life. Um, I stopped going to the temple. Um, The last session that I went to, this was February of 2019. I um, left the session feeling very distraught and very, um, you know, again, those suicidal feelings just kept coming back. And I decided this is not a healthy place for me to be at right now. Um During sacrament meeting, whenever they're passing the sacrament, I just, I always felt like I had to sit there and wrestle with myself and wrestle with God and you know, try and figure it out in that ten minute span of time, you know, and that was just not healthy for me because it made going to church seem like a chore. Going to church is like, okay, I have to sit there during sacrament meeting and face facts about my existence. And then I would have an existential crisis during Sunday school and is just I realized, no, I can't do that. So instead of worrying about that stuff during when they were passing the sacrament, I would read the hymn book or I would. Um, you know, read through some scriptures. I would just sit there and stare at people because that was easier, you know. That was what I needed to do. Um, I decided to stop dating women. Um, I realized that I needed to, that that was causing me more stress than it was worth. Um, And so for the rest of 2019, I didn't didn't go on any dates. And it was awesome because it gave me the time to really figure myself out what I wanted. Um, I, you know, I was meeting with a bishop pretty regularly, but same thing with my parents. Every time that I'd meet with a bishop, it would be like an hour long conversation. It would have to sit there and figure things out. And it was exhausting. And I, like I say, it wasn't good for my mental health at the time. So I decided, you know what, Bishop, I'm just going to have to take a breather for this and really figure things out on my own. Um, and he was he was great, he was understanding, and it really honestly helped you know my relationship with God to take that step back and do those you know stop doing those things that were causing me harm you know that were that were evoking all of these negative feelings um so you know i this is July of twenty nineteen it's about two years ago i had um you know I was again feeling. Really depressed about the whole situation and i I remember i, I had a dream that um and I, I believe this to be to be personal revelation. I had a dream where I was in a stake center like the stake center that i was I always went to growing up and I was walking out of the chapel and there in the foyer was um just standing there was my husband and i i just I just knew that that's who it was and you know, I I grabbed his hand and we walked out of the chapel together, and um, and then you know another part of the dream was us like at our wedding and my family was there and his family was there, and then there was another part of the dream that it was us sitting in the back of sacrament meeting, holding hands, and I felt like I would I had always been trying to I was waiting so long for God to give me an answer and to tell me what to do. But with that dream, I kind of saw it as him telling me, you know what, Calvin, whatever you want to do, you're going to be okay. It doesn't mean that you won't have to deal with consequences, but you're going to be okay. And that I woke up and it wasn't like God had given me permission or anything. It was he he let me realize that, no, you have your agency and you can choose. And if this is what you choose to do, you're going to be okay. And that – it was like the sun rose finally on my life after, you know, nine or ten years of dealing with this. And I was able to finally be okay with, with me being gay. You know, I was able to – um to come out to a lot more people, I actually came out in several of my classes at BYU. I came out one. The first time was in my eternal families class, and we were talking about same-sex attraction. And I was sitting in the very back, and I just raised my hand and I said, "Yeah, this is something that I experience." And sitting in the back, it was it was scary because one by one, everyone starts to turn their head to look at you, and you <laughs> very put on the spot. But um, yeah, there I I didn't come out I didn't come out in classes for like attention or anything it was just if it was pertinent to the conversation then I would share my experience and I never had a I never had anyone say anything negative about it every time my professors thanked me like came up to me afterwards and thanked me a lot of people thanked me for just sharing and I understand that for me to do that at BYU is something that is a luxury that's new it's something that is very new um, that, that people can experience. You know, five, five or six years ago even, it, it was something that people probably didn't feel comfortable enough to do. But I just felt like, no, this is me and this is my experience. And why would I hide that, you know? So um, in 2020, uh, I remember January of 2020 is when I first decided um, I'm going to, I'm going to start dating again. And this time I'm going to start dating guys and we'll see how it goes. And the, the realities of dating in Utah and, uh, you know, same sex dating in Utah is, um, it's difficult. Um, it's, I've, I've only ever met people online through like dating apps and everything. And, um, it's it's an interesting experience, <laughs> one that you know my friends and my family they they can't really relate to a whole lot, just because you know it's it's just a different reality for them. I I, I would love if I could meet someone organically, you know, um, but it's just I can't go to my singles ward and hope that I'll find my future companion there. You know, it's just um, something that I I don't get to do and. It frustrates me sometimes, but it's just the reality of the situation. But um, yeah, I I started dating my first boyfriend. This was um, March of or February March of 2020, and funnily enough, uh, that was the we started dating during the two week period at BYU when it was okay to date um, for same sex individuals to date each other, Um, and then. I remember sitting in the library when they kind of—I I don't know—BYU administration did what they had to do, and it really ended up hurting a lot of people, especially me. But um, in the end, I, I can't change anything about what happened. But I remember sitting there in the library studying, and my boyfriend at the time texted me, and he had like taken a picture of the protesters in front of the Wilk, and was like, "Do you know about this?" And at first, I thought they, that they were there were people protesting the fact that. Same-sex people could, same-sex attracted people could date, Um, but then I realized, uh, no, they had, you know, someone uh, in charge of CES schools, a general authority, had said that, no, that is, you know, a false interpretation of the honor code policy change, Uh, and that really hurt. That was um, something that I I just felt. um, I, I don't like to be a victim in my own story. But that was some. That was the one time where I felt um, cheated, and I felt that I was um, wrongly accused of something that I felt was right to do. Um, and I continued in that relationship. And honestly, you know, that was my last semester on campus. Um, well, COVID happened a week later, and everyone kind of forgot about it. But that was my last, sem- last semester on campus, and so I felt like. Um you know i I felt okay in my personal decision to continue to date um and i you know starting having that first relationship with that first boyfriend is a very healing experience because just to be validated and every- every feeling that I've had before you know about being gay and everything was finally validated, and like somebody else understands, and I have a personal connection with them um then I you know, I, so I've been in like three long-term relationships or uh, serious relationships, I would say. Um, and the second one, we definitely, um, you know, got the, we dated for five or six months and, you know, I met his family and they were great about it. And he met my family and, um, it was, it was, it was hard to make that adjustment because I got a little impatient with my family, especially my siblings. And I had to realize too, and this is my advice to other LGBTQ people, is that you've got to be patient with other people because I look at it and I've had 11 years to deal with this. And me holding hands with my boyfriend is something that I am now comfortable with. But to my brothers, you know, who are sitting there in the room with us while we're doing, while we're holding hands, to them, they've only had two years to deal with it or, you know, to reconcile it. And for them to to see that, it made them I'm uncomfortable, which, you know, then I kind of got angry and defensive about it, but I had to realize like, no, it is something that takes a long time. And with dating, you know, same-sex dating too, it has, it's so complicated and there are so many nuances to it that um, a lot of people don't read that I don't even realize sometimes because to me, it seems normal now, but um, the way that I've the way that I like to think about it is if you're gay and then you start dating in, in adulthood you've never really it's your it's still your adolescent dating period you have never really had um, you know this is the first time where you're feeling actual like physical attraction to other people that you're dating and it uh, the tendency is to go very quickly into relationships because you get caught up in all of that and um, I've had to learn to be patient with myself, to be patient with others, and just to realize this is a lot longer of a process than most other heterosexual relationship heterosexual relationships get to go through, especially with you know when you're at BYU and the average engagement period is like five months, um, I've had to really change my viewpoints about dating and realize this is a years' long process that I cannot rush through. Because, I mean, the luxury that heterosexual couples have in the church is when you meet someone, you know exactly where the relationship is going. You know what their standards are. And you know, we're either going to break up or we're going to get sealed in the temple. And this is just what it's going to look like. And you already have all of your standards set up for you with the commandments. And if you're... Uh, If you hold a temple recommend, you can assume a lot about that person. But with gay dating, especially trying to find people who um, aren't antagonistic towards the church, there's a lot more conversations that you have to have about what is your relationship with the church? How do you feel about this? How do you feel about certain commandments? How do you feel about um, sex before marriage? How do you feel about moving in together before marriage? How do you feel about word of wisdom topics? How does your family see you dating, you know, and... um, and you kind of have to just process a lot more and go through a lot more stuff to to try and realize, you know, try and make it work. And it just, it takes a long time to get there. Um, but, yeah, so I, I, over the past year, I've been, I've been teaching, at, um, teaching at this high school. And, again, I, I um, you know, I, my students don't know that I'm gay. Um, you know, the students that I've had for the past year, and um, they might have assumed. Students, they like to sidetrack you a lot and ask you about your personal life because they think it can distract you from the lecture. So they'd ask me all the time. I had one student in particular who would walk in every single day and be like, Mr. Smith, do you have a girlfriend yet? I'm like, nope. Thanks for asking, though. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I um in in the future for my first year i decided not to disclose that information to my students just um you know for for lots of reasons but um going forward i i don't it, it's not my intention to indoctrinate anyone it's not my i don't have an agenda as a teacher i'm here to just make sure that my students feel comfortable in my classroom um if they learn us history great if not i just i just want them to be okay you know if they can, because some of these kids they go through uh, really hard experiences, and the fact that they show up to school is a victory in and of itself. And so, if I can just provide them with a space where they feel comfortable enough to be themselves, then that's then my job is done. You know, if they learn history, great. If not, I don't care. Um, and so, to see, you know, I I, I do eventually want to. Um, you know, I, I want my students to know that if they are struggling, that they can, you know, that they can talk to me about it and that they don't have to feel like they're going through this alone. Cause when I was in high school, up until, up until I started dating, to be honest, I never knew anyone who was openly gay. I never had any examples of, yes, I'm gay and I have a, solid life. I have a healthy relationship with my family. I have a I have a stable career, you know, and it, I just I was never aware of anyone in my life leading up to, you know, leading up to that that I could look at and say, "Well, I'm gay, but I've got this person in my life who has their life together, you know, and that has figured out a way to to balance all of those things together." So, I I really want to be that for my students and provide them with, with that space where they can, if they are struggling with something, that they can um, feel like there's somebody else out there who's you know who they can talk to. And like I was saying, with my mission, I feel like every experience that I've had, every gift, every talent that I've been given is so that I can help other people. I feel like the reason that you know, one of the reasons that I am gay and that I've had gone through this experience is so that as as someone who works with youth, that I can empathize with them, you know, that my experience is not, you know, me going through all of this was not just for my own personal gain, but it's so that I can go and help other people who might be struggling with the same things. Um, And yeah, I just, that's kind of my, philosophy going forward. That's my philosophy about teaching. Like I said, is just just to help them to help them to know that they're seen and that they're loved and appreciated and understood. Um, And yeah, after, after you establish that relationship with them where they feel comfortable enough to be in your classroom, that's when the real learning happens. Because if, and one of the things I like to do too, every day when my students walk into the classroom, I like to say their name out loud. Um, just even if it's, you know, towards the end of the class, if I'm just saying goodbye to them, even if I, by, by me saying their name out loud, lets them know that I, one, I know who that, what their name is. And two, that I have acknowledged their presence in my classroom for that day. And that even if they go through the rest of their day thinking, you know, no one cares about them, at least I can be that person to, to say I, you know, or just to ask them how they're doing, or just, you know, just to let them know that they're seen and loved. Um so yeah, like I said, that's that's um that's my goal going forward is to just try and be the best educator that I can be while still, you know, developing those relationships with my students. So
0: Calvin, that was great. Brought me to tears a couple times, and on behalf of all of our listeners, thanks for the courage to share your story. It's vulnerable, it's real, it's authentic. This is the vulnerable platform. (laughs) Um, You're certainly fitting that mold. Um, But seriously, um, there's just a great, this is a sacred place, and I'm so honored you'd share your story. And there are people listening right now that you have said some things that have given them hope. Hope is one of the greatest things we can give people, Calvin. Mm -hmm. And you've been in some really dark spots, and I like that you talk about that because it gives other people hope that there's a way forward. I love you being open about pornography. Pornography, to me, is a window into someone's sexual orientation. It doesn't change it. (laughs) Um, I think you taught that pretty clearly, and I think that was very vulnerable and honest of you. Is just um, And many really good Latter-day Saints work through challenges with pornography, but it's separate than sexual orientation, and I like the way you just helped us understand that. Mm-hmm. And and realize that at first you couldn't disconnect the two, yeah. But it actually helped you to disconnect the two. And so you know, I talked about this in the book. Listeners, you probably heard me. And addiction's something we need to try <laughs> to sort. But sexual orientation, straight or gay, is just—it's not something you try. It's just how you are. It's like yeah. I'm right-handed. That's just how I am. I didn't try anything to become right-handed. Yeah. um I wasn't, I guess, I've never thought of this, but it's not like we're born, I have a little granddaughter that's not right-handed. It's not like we're born with neither-handedness. That's not a word, Calvin. And somehow yeah. we learn that or um, society teaches that. It's how we're wired. I guess there's some people, I'm just, I can't even say that word. What's it called when you can do things equally with both hands? Ambidextrous. Amphrodextrous. Sorry, yeah. sorry <laughs> listeners. Calvin got it. Um, I am so touched by your your buddy that bolted out of Elder's Quorum. It was close enough for the spirit to end the end the lesson early. Yeah. And I love your parents, and I love your mom being there for you and saying, "I'm coming there." And I love you being open with your own feelings about being suicidal and just recognizing you needed help, and that takes great courage. And if you're if there's listeners listening that are suicidal, I encourage you to act on your impressions that Calvin acted on. Really good people, um, through no fault of their own. Um, get where you got, and yeah. and that's where we need help. And I love your role of so many people in your life. And I like tell all our listeners where you are emotionally right now.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, right now I think I'm dealing with uh, the struggles of uh, you know becoming an adult, and and as I'm kind of settling into my own career path. I mean, the past, ever since I graduated from high school. Um, the only consistent thing in your life is change. And so now that I'm settling into things that, okay, I'm in the job that I'm going to be in for the ne- for the foreseeable future. I'm living in the place that I'm at for the foreseeable future. It's um, That takes its own adjustments. Um, and right now, as with every other point in my life, I'm just trying to be patient. Um, as far as the church goes to, I, I would just wanted to say, like, I... Um, my plan is to be as active and participate as much as I can in the church. And I know.
0: Why? Why would you do that? Just because, yeah. if, you know, how, why would you do that?
1: So I've always felt like if I were to, and a lot of people do this, and I think their experiences are valid, but um, for me to leave the church, I mean, I've, I have every reason to leave the church in angst you know to leave the church because someone said something and with the bishops that I've worked with um some of them have said things that have been more helpful than others you know and some of them have said things that have been you know pretty negative and you know but so for for those reasons I could just I could have left so many different times because it's easier to do that you know it's easier to say no I I can't do this because they said this to me, and um, the way that I see that, if if I were to take that path, I would never truly be happy in my life because I would always feel like there's an organization that is against me, you know, that I'm always going to be bitter towards towards the church for for something that they did or something that somebody said, and I like to separate the church from the gospel and. I like to understand that the church is something that it ultimately in in an eternal perspective the church is something that's temporary and something that we've definitely seen in this over this past year and a half is that um the our main priority is worshiping in in the home and teaching the gospel and living the gospel in our families and it really has helped me to to not associate my relationship with God with my relationship with the church you know they are not codependent on each other and um, I I know that going to church helps my relationship with God going to church helps me to maintain and strengthen my testimony in Christ and that's why I go you know that's why I continue to go right now'm um, I go to a family ward um, and it's awesome. <laughs> I I think a family ward for me, where I'm at right now, a family ward is much better than a singles ward for me to be in right now. Um, but I am the prim- primary pianist, and for me to go and play the piano in primary is just what I need right now. I and honestly, like it really helped with COVID to take a step back where I wasn't sitting in elders' quorum learning about the law of chastity, you know. And uh, it has really helped me to prioritize the the facets of my faith that I have needed to work on. And right now, like, I'm relearning the articles of faith with all the primary kids in my ward right now, and going back to those simple and uh, pure truths of the gospel that I learned when I was younger. And that's exactly what I need right now. Um, and if someone who is struggling with, you know, continuing to go to church, I would my main suggestion would be just find what works for you, you know? And if something is causing you pain, if something is causing you stress, or if it's making you depressed to be there, then then find something to change it. You know, like I said about sacrament meeting, instead of sitting there wrestling with God and wrestling with myself, I just just find something else. Find something else that I could occupy my mind with. Um, and, you know, like you mentioned at the beginning, I, I, I definitely believe that, you know, being disfellowshipped or excommunicated, if I were to pursue, a, you know, since I'm pursuing a monogamous same-sex marriage, um, it's definitely a possibility. And I have understood and I feel like I've accepted that possibility. Um, but I, regardless, I still want to go. You know, I still want to keep the gospel close to my life and I know that the the best way for me personally to do that is by continuing to attend church. Um because honestly um 98% of the good things in my life have come about because of my membership in the church. And even though bishops have said things, even though members have said things that have made me feel uncomfortable, I know that they always had my best intent. You know, they had the best intentions and they, you know, wanted the best for me. Um and so You know, the good has outweighed the bad in every single circumstance, in every single instance. And so why would I, you know, why would I throw away the 99% good because of the 1% bad? Um, So, yeah, going forward, I just want to participate as much as I can. You know, like we were talking before, even, even if it's just me passing out hymn books, even if I'm, you know since I won't be able to have an actual calling, even if it's just me passing out hymn books or greeting people as they walk in, or let me set up the chairs before, you know, sacrament meeting or whatever, you know, just um to be in to be in that ward setting to to participate and, you know, still find my own place in the kingdom of God during this mortal life. Because, you know, I I just don't think that I think me being gay is, is not a mistake. I, it's one of the – being gay is not my personality is what I like to say. But it's definitely – it um, It influences almost every part of my personality. And it's um, one of the things that makes me who I who I am today. And if me being gay gives me certain gifts and talents and abilities that help me to help others – then why would why would god try and take those away you know why in the next life would those things magically disappear if you know and I, I truly believe 100% that you know the reason for me being gay is so that i can help other people you know so why would something like that go away because there're still plenty of people who need help you know after this life you know and after the second coming so Why would my place in the kingdom of God be diminished if if there's still something, if there's still work to be done, you know? So and you know, I I just feel like I am so grateful for agency and I'm so grateful for the for the plan of salvation to see that I can choose. And, you know, I've I've made choices in my life that I stand by. And yes, I deal with the consequences of those every day, you know, but um, I'm just still so grateful for, you know, that revelation that I received that despite the choices that I will make and have made or whatever, I'm going to be okay. And ultimately, that's, that's all that I'm working for right now. I'm, I'm just, I'm going to be okay. And that's what I'm content with right now.
0: We're kind of coming to the end, listeners of our recording window. And it's, I just, you know, my first reaction is just on behalf of all of us thank you, Calvin. You're 25. Um, I hope one of the patterns I've recognized is a lot of our LGBTQ Latter day Saints are really spiritually mature, emotionally mature, um, because they've had to wrestle so much on their own with. the the complexities of their life, and they've developed a really good relationship with Heavenly Father and the Savior. Because in some ways, we don't have answers, and we don't quite know what to say or not to say. And You've done a really good job, I think, of just figuring out your very best path. And I think you're doing a good job of developing boundaries. I think I don't know if you learned that through therapy or if that just came naturally to you, but I love the way you're saying, this is how I'm approaching the church— This is what I'm doing during the sacrament. This is how I'm approaching this. I think that's part of you just defining your relationship going forward through the personal agency you have. And I think you feel empowered from Heavenly Father. Um, I just recognize, you know, the complexities of your situation. So self-determination, listeners, is the best principle, which I think is a sister principle to agencies, particularly for LGBTQ Latter-day Saints, is help them get in the very best spot they can emotionally, spiritually, mentally, whatever the right words are, so, and to go slow so they can make their very best decisions going forward. And I've always felt that would be my job as a father, as a priesthood leader. I would just, like your other bishops, invite you to follow church teachings. You would expect that and know that. But I'd probably try to help you make the very best decisions going forward and trust you. I love your thoughts about dating. I've never really thought as much about the nuances. And there's a lot of parents that reach out to me saying, what's the best podcast I can give to my kids that are starting to date, same-sex date, because they're kids and the parents. There's a lot of fear there. There's not. Oh, yeah. Definitely. (laughs) And I thought you laid down some pretty good principles there and also talked about the complexities of that. But I think one of the things you greatest said is to go slow um, I think you're a very good communicator. So those of you that are going down this road, I think you need to communicate just like you did values, boundaries, um, where you want to go if this is a long-term relationship as far as a relationship with the church. And, and I just, it's a kind of a complicated space, but I think talking about it helps people that decide that's their space, make better decisions. Mm-hmm. And I think you've done a good job of taking God with you. Yeah. Um. I believe really strongly, listeners, that God will walk with us on the paths that we choose. And that he, yeah, our temple recommends come and go. and Our ability to participate fully in the church comes and goes. But God's love in our lives, I just believe it's unconditional. Um, We can disappoint him. We can let him down. We can maybe wish we chose different choices. But I think he's going to be there with us all the time Mm -hmm. and want to give us personal revelations. That's one of the greatest um, I think foundational doctrines of our restored gospel is our heavenly parents love us, are worth this set, and they will walk with us. And And I think you do a good job of helping other LGBTQ Latter-day Saints to say, God, will be with me, that this part about me is something that is not displeasing to God. And, yeah. and he would want to give me personal revelation on this part of me that if you're a younger Latter-day Saint where you were at one point that you love. To not be part of you, that he can give you perspective on why this needs to be part of you, and I love the feeling you have, Calvin, about this is part of you in a good way because it makes your whole life mission possible. Yeah, and and I just I have to think that that's what, what you're supposed to feel, and you're and maybe these early chapters of connecting with younger people. Um, through the service you're doing and even being a safe person as they need trusted adults to talk to will be part of the future chapters of your life. So I have to think this is kind of the beginning chapter just opening, you know, with one year under your belt. Yes. But I think this will be part of your future. Um so listeners, this is just a complicated space, but it's a sacred space and I I hope that brave men like Calvin that step forward and share their stories, bring us together. Calvin's not inviting everybody to follow his path. If you feel your path is celibate, I'm sure that Calvin has some celibate gay Latter-day Saints that say, this is my path. And Mm -hmm. I just sense you're not saying, well, no, go follow my path. Or if someone's in a mixed orientation, your marriage say, no, that's not the way to do it. I, I, I just sense you're saying, this is my path. Support, you know, And I'm trying to help everybody just know their best path forward and supporting everybody. Any thoughts on that?
1: Oh yeah. I think it's just, you got to find what's best for you. And this has taken me a a really long time and I'm the last person who should be giving this advice. My dad will say, I'm, I'm the least patient person ever. And I love to plan out the rest of my life in 20 minutes. Um, but it's, it's that it's that you can't, rush this process you know and it's something that takes time and you really have to to figure out what is going to be the best situation for you and just be patient with that but also like i got frustrated because i waited so long for god to give me an answer and to just tell me what to do and a lot of the times we look for that we look for god to tell us what we do so if something goes wrong then it's his fault not ours um but you know be patient and, you know, but ultimately it is it is your decision. And I think, you know, the revelation that I've received can be applied to a lot of other people in that circumstance whatever you choose, you're going to be okay. And I know that that God loves us, you know, and that ultimately all of this is possible. The fact that I get to choose and that I get to live my life the way that I want to live it is because of Christ and the sacrifice that he made. And, you know, being gay has really strengthened my testimony in that. And to see that, you no, know, there's there's a reason for this. There's a reason that he gave his life is so that, you know, I can I can make mistakes and that I can make choices that have positive and negative consequences and that, you know, I get to live my life the way that I want to. So, yeah, ultimately it's just just be patient and and I'm still being patient. I still I still get frustrated sometimes cuz I'm like, well no, like this is the way I want this is the way I want my life to go and so it should happen immediately, you know? Like it's just it's going to take some time.
0: I'm also struck by, you know, your willingness to participate in the church and defining things you'd be willing to do and kind of broke my heart a little bit cuz I recognize, you know, if you do lose your church membership, I think we call that membership withdrawn these days, that you can't pray and you can't do a lot of the things. And I, the grace you're extending back to the church is remarkable. I, I would just want to hand out the handbooks. I just want to participate. And I don't think that's where we need to be as a church. I don't think that's the finish line that Calvin Smith spends his rest of his life passing out handbooks. Yeah. And listeners, I don't sort of get into the space of trying to be a church leader or God and saying where we need to go, but we're not at the finish line if that's where. And so I just, I recognize that we're better off with Calvin teaching us about the Savior and about the atonement and about our heavenly parents and fundamental um, principles that he's learned in his life and can teach others. And I hope that that your ability to teach... um, not only in a high school setting, which isn't conditional on your church membership, yeah. <laughs> but in a church setting is somehow made possible. We're better off with your voice in our church, Calvin. Thank you. We need your voice. And we need and it helps all of us. It helps us to become the body of Christ that Paul talks about in Corinthians, where every part of the body is needed. And and listeners, there's a belief and behavior hurdle to attend the temple that Calvin and I know about. <laughs> And, but to me, in the congregation, there's not. Yeah. Um, we all, I just think in the congregation, we can work harder to help everybody feel this belonging. President Ballard, in his uh, April conference talk, I've talked to that about that a lot on the podcast, just talked about the need to help people feel like they belong. Mm-hmm. Part of that is probably passing out more than hymn books for the rest of your life. <laughs> <laughs> um, and just the feeling of belonging you felt on your mission. Yeah. As you just consecrate it all to bring others to Christ through a restored church. And that's how you're wired is you seem to be wired to bring, to help other people. And I hope in some ways that's made more possible, even if you're in a same-sex marriage. That, that... So some of you will like me having this conversation, listeners, and some won't. But I just feel like we've got to do more. We're not at the finish line because... I hope that our straight members are having the same experience in our churches, our gay members, and I think we can say that that's probably not happening <laughs> Yeah, and still be thoughtful and supportive of the church. So I'll leave it. I'm, thanks for being on the podcast, one of the finest Thank podcasts you. we have, Calvin. You give me hope for the future of our high schools, of our world, of our <laughs> church, and recognize the great work you've done and the hard work you've done to be get the spot you have. But one of the things listeners I'm noticing is that people are able to get where Calvin is in their twenties instead of their thirties and forties and fifties. And, and to me, that is a sign of just we're doing better society as a culture, as a family. You're talking to your parents about this a long time ago. You've got friends, you've got straight friends. I think that joke with you about this. We talked about that (laughs) and just how, how that's really helpful for you to just have friends in your life Mm -hmm. that, it doesn't have to be always a real heavy subject and that their role to kind of joke with you and have fun. And I think that's a good thing. So I'll just turn it back to you for any closing comments, Calvin.
1: Oh, I just, I think, like I said before, agency is, is something that I'm so grateful for. And, you know, looking at, looking at God's plan and everything, I, I don't know what specifically will happen in the future, but, um, I know that I know that there's a place for me in the kingdom of God. I don't know where it is exactly, but I'm trying my best to, um, you know, to fit in, I'm trying to take a more active approach than a passive one, um, and you know, proactively, uh, trying to build my life the way that I want it to be. Um, I think, you know, the the tendency, you know, since I've I've struggled with depression my whole life, but the tendency with depression is to to um, just fall into really self-destructive behaviors. But I think that I'm, I'm trying my hardest to break that habit and to say, no, this is what I want my life to look like. Instead of having to choose between option A or option B, I'm going to make option C and I'm going to make it the way that I want to, um, so that I can be the best person that I need to be to help other people. So I'm just so grateful for for this life. I'm grateful that I'm here. I'm grateful that I can, um, you know, help other people with the gifts that God has given me. So, and I think ultimately that's, you know, when we when we pass on to the next life, I think the questions that he's going to be asking us are more, what did you do with the gifts and talents that I gave you to help other people rather than, you know, did you read your scriptures every day? And while, the, while those are important things, I think, you know, ultimately things that we do like pray and read our scriptures and attend church and go to the temple or so that we can help other people, you know, ultimate, yeah, we do get benefits from them. But I think that's our mission is to not be hero on this life alone. You know, there were, you know, Adam and Eve were, they were the, they were first two people on the world uh, for a reason. Want to think is that they could help each other. So that's that's my goal in life is just to try and help other people the best that I can. So it's great.
0: So we'll just sign off. Um, thank you, listeners, for making this podcast possible by listening. But especially thank you to great people that step forward and share real vulnerable, honest stories that bring us together as the same human family. So this is Richard Osler and Calvin Smith signing off from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.